The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. Today's show is one that I recorded weeks ago when I had the chance to sit down, talk with, and learn the story of Jordan Goddard. Jordan is a firefighter in the state of Virginia and a former educator. We spent about 90 minutes on the phone. The initial plan was to talk, get comfortable, and learn her story. It took me about 30 minutes before I decided and I realized that, like Adam's interview in episode 17, this was the show. Jordan spoke passionately and eloquently about grief, her loss, and her work towards recovery. I wasn't sure why I sat on this interview as long as I did. A voice kept telling me that the time just wasn't right, and I'm happy I waited. Now is the time, and I say that from a selfish point of view. My department lost a firefighter two weeks ago. My friend and former crew member was found dead one morning. It was determined that he died from natural causes. Derek's death has rocked our department in general and me specifically. His death, like any other, begs the question of why. Unfortunately, there isn't an answer to that question, but the loss has created grief as it normally does. As I questioned which show should be released this week, that voice in my head screamed at me, and I rushed to find Jordan's interview. I listened through a couple of times, and I prepped it for release. The experience she shares and the battle she outlines speaks to me today as I learned to deal with my own grief. I want to thank Jordan for being so open, honest, and raw. Her story has already helped before it's even been released. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Fire departments don't like to talk about suicide because it's, we don't it's like very to talk political. About, right. <laughs> and so I started forcing that issue and then had an idea for a podcast and I didn't know where I wanted to go with it. And then it just came together and, and this is what, this is what came out of that. All right. Tell me about your family life. My family is or was a fire service family. That's how my parents met. My mom was a paramedic and absolutely loved her job and worked in PG County for several years in Maryland. And my dad at the time was a fireman also in PG County, basically born out of their volunteer system. And that's how they met. And my mom wrote this kind of like memoir about her life and she described it their meeting is a joke where she had to take fire classes that she really didn't want to take because <laughs> it was all about paramedic life for her and she met my dad and yeah so that's how they how they met and both of them I just remember both of them describing that it respectively was the best job that they had ever had in the world and that they really didn't feel like they ever went to work. It was just something that they loved to do. And and I really admired that. And even though both of them were in the fire service together, I didn't 
I didn't grow up like in the firehouse, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Oh, I didn't it makes have, total sense. Yeah, I didn't have any inkling of what I was getting into when I switched careers a couple years ago. I didn't, I didn't have any idea how a firehouse worked. I didn't know the difference between an engine and a tower. Like nothing, zero percent. I just knew that both my parents described it as something that they absolutely loved. And I wanted that. And so that was part of my inspiration. I was an elementary school teacher in Prince George's County in Baltimore counties uh, for six years. And then I got burned out. I got fed up and I said, okay, it's time for part two of this story. And I remember is December 28th, 2018. And my dad and I were having dinner at Bonefish Grill, which was our place. And I told him that is what I wanted to do. And he looked at me uh, with concern (laughs) and questioned whether or not I knew what I was getting myself into. And I said, nope, but I'm sure that I want to do it. And days after that, he helped me look into applications. And here we are today. My family was an integral inspiration for where I am now. And yeah, I just, I am glad that I made the switch. Where'd you grow up? In PG? So I guess technically I was born there, yes. But I grew up in Southern Maryland in Calvert County. Okay. And my parents were uh, divorced when I think I was in fifth grade or so. By that time, my mom was out of the fire service. And my dad, I believe, had moved on to something else. And then he came back around to the fire service in the early 2010s, I believe. And... Uh, yeah, I had a weird reaction to my parents getting divorced at the time. And that's a weird age to have something like that happen just uh, because we have that age in common, by the way. So I know we do. Yeah. OK, <laughs> so you're old enough to know that things are going on, but not really old enough to understand why. And yeah. I would be remiss if I said that didn't affect my view on things now. But what things you... got uncomfortable for a while and then I eventually rebuilt my family relationships and <laughs> that's where we are now. What do you mean by that you'd be you're remiss if you said it didn't affect things now? Just my view on um, how I relate to people, what's normal in mm-hmm. terms of uh, relationships. I used to, I guess during that time, I didn't really know any better, but I thought it affected my view on work essentially, because I always thought that work was taking my uh, dad's time away from what would have better been spent on his kids. Yeah. So I can't really say that I remember a whole lot about that, but just things like that, that I've carried with me for the last 20 years or so that have shaped how I view things now. So you said kids, how many uh, siblings do you have? I have a brother, uh, younger, and he is 28, and I have a younger sister who is 25. So we're all adults now. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> definitely we're adults. All, we're all dealing with things a little bit, um, a little bit differently now <laughs> that we're all grown up. So where'd you go to school? I went to a school in Calvert County, and graduated from Huntington High School, which was new at the time. And then I pursued my bachelor's. Uh, degree in elementary education at the University of Maryland College Park. So put my blood, sweat, and tears into all of that and survived six years <laughs> in, <laughs> in the education field and then had to up and leave. 
education field can take it out of you. I, I know that feeling. I Before I joined the fire service, I worked with autistic kids in the education setting mostly. Ugh. And I did behavior plans. I was My work was in applied behavior analysis. So it, it can definitely wear. It'll take its toll. And it, the funny part is that a lot of people who know that part of my backstory being an educator, the biggest comment is, I guess you're not really in a profession that's much different. When they and find out I worked with autistic kids, that's the same thing they tell me. Yeah. And aside from the obvious things, it's really not that different, except for that now the kids are older. Yeah. <laughs> they're exactly. adult age. I like to joke and say that firefighting is safer than working with autistic kids. I, I wouldn't say that you're wrong. Not especially the population I was working with. So I, I, I know I commiserating with the burnout in the education field because I did that for roughly 20 years before I joined oh. the fire service. That's amazing. I did the same thing as you. I decided to look for something that, that I wanted to do different, and I had no idea. I didn't know the difference between an engine and a truck and a rescue. Yeah. It was all foreign language to me when I joined the fire service. But we're public servants at heart, so I think we ended up in the right profession. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so you joined Fairfax what year? Recently. 2019 was my hire date. Okay. So I'm still very much a baby. I have a lot to learn. And I went through their academy. Uh, it was the largest academy that Fairfax has ever seen with 60 people. I was going to say that's saying something because you guys, like us, put through pretty big academies. Yeah. Yes, it was. I, I was a little worried just because of my lack of experience. And I was... I was concerned that I wasn't going to get the the sets and reps, as they call it, for things that I just have, I I needed time with. And I made it through after <laughs> after six months of that process. And we were the, the, the OG COVID class. We yeah. were um, really trying to, to figure that all out as COVID was going down. And it was it was an experience. We did not have a public graduation or anything like that. And for those reasons, and I was glad to be done when I was done. <laughs> so I think that's interesting because you don't know the fire service without COVID. That's correct. Yeah, that was something that once I made it into the field, I we were going on calls and dressing out in in a lot of extensive PPE and I haven't known or I didn't know the fire service without masks and this protective PPE and all of that until maybe a year and a half later. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, I'm going on my first call without a mask on my face. And it was like this big deal. I, I'm actually pretty sure I remember the exact date, May 27th. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's wild. But yeah, that kind of shaped uh, how things uh, went for me the first year and a half or so. And it, w it was an experience. But I remember just I, I still follow a lot of teach on my social media platforms and things like that. And I couldn't all of a sudden couldn't relate to them talking about how vastly different things were in terms of their careers. And I'm sitting over here, oh, okay, the only thing that I have to do different is protect myself. I'm still going to work every single day and still <laughs> still meeting the regular expectations of my job. So I couldn't relate to them on that at all. And that's a good point. Because I, I talked to somebody, I don't know how long ago it was, but I, they asked how COVID affected us. And, and I said, it really didn't affect us. We made our changes at work and it was yeah. odd. It was odd to get used to, like you said, wearing all the PPE and all the precautions. But we didn't, the world didn't stop for us. 
Not really. Because <laughs> I kept going to work and, you know, it, it, if anything, our calls increased and, and it kept us even busier. And the, the rest of the world was sitting at home and getting groceries delivered because they're afraid to go out. We're out all the yeah. time. And so it was wild. I don't think COVID, now, obviously, we had our COVID calls and, and listen, I didn't like taking dying patients out of their ho- homes due to COVID, mm-hmm. but we still, we just got them, went to work. You know, it didn't yep. affect us the way it affected general public, I think. No, I, I remember watching the news and listening to everybody at the firehouse. They've got families and stuff like that. And everybody's reactions were so wildly different than I guess mine was. I was just, I don't, I was just doing the things that I I graduated to do. Yeah. And I, and it almost, at one point I, I completely lost track of it because of family and, and I didn't realize how it was affecting family. And yeah. then it was like, wait, should I feel guilty because it doesn't bother me that like the, the changes haven't bothered me. Yeah, it was it, it was it's something weird to to think through, I guess. Yeah, I at the time when I was going through the academy, I was living with my significant other, Jason, and he's like he was like a, a web developer, somebody who already had a job that was could potentially work from home and didn't necessarily need an office space. And I remember just his reaction versus my reaction was it was quite different. And yeah, like. I remember being concerned, obviously, for his safety, but for for mine, I'm just, I don't know. It just wasn't the same. <laughs> yeah, I, and I agree. It's exactly what I, that was exactly the feeling. And and um, the only person, I, this that sounds bad, not the only person. The person <laughs> I, I was worried the most about was my mom because right before COVID struck and became a thing, she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And that was the one worry I had with the job and my life. So yeah. I was going down to Tennessee quite often to to help out because she was still living by herself and she needed some care every once in a while. So I was going down to Tennessee. So I was traveling, you know, I was coming back and I was doing my tour and I was being exposed left and right. And then, and then I'm going down to Tennessee and I'm, and I'm just worried that I'm bringing this into our home. And thankfully, at the same time, my sister changed jobs and she was able to move to Tennessee and stay with her. And so there, there was stability. Right. That was my main concern was do what happens if I get her sick? Because I could handle COVID, but, exactly. but immunocompromised as she is, there's no way she could have handled it. Yeah. And you and I had that have that in common. Um, just because my dad during right during the height of COVID was also diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I remember not really having an opinion about like vaccines or COVID vaccines. And really the only thing on my mind was, okay, if the vaccines are available and he's in the hospital, I got worried that hospitals would start to require COVID vaccines for visitors. And so I got my COVID vaccine because I wanted to make sure that I was able to go and visit if, if I could. So that's why I got that. But yeah, my my dad was diagnosed with uh, stage four bladder cancer in January of 2021. And I can only assume that it was the result of firefighting. The man had a 30, 35 year firefighting career in various positions. And he had suffered from prostate cancer and melanoma and all sorts of stuff that may or may not have been attributed to this career, but this is the one that was, it was the big one and it 
from what I read, a sarcomatoid carcinoma, which is a very rare type of bladder cancer, I think accounts for less than 1% of all cancers ever. And then I believe the statistic is 0.3% of all bladder cancers. Wow. It, it, it was very rare. And he ultimately, he died from eight months later on September 1st of 2021. Eight months. It was very aggressive and yeah. it was very shocking. <laughs> and and yeah. obviously at stage four, it had spread. It, it was affecting multiple organs at that point. There, the, pro, the, the, the survivability of this type of cancer is very dismal. It's very low. I think it's something somewhere between 10 and 15%. And he ended up at Johns Hopkins under the care of one of their leading oncologists who specializes in this specific type of cancer. And eventually he he even enrolled in a study for this particular type of cancer. I think he was number 16, a participant number 16 in the very first firefighter to basically when they attempted to take this cancer out of his body, they shipped it off so they could research it essentially. So four months into his treatments, they decided to go in and surgically remove whatever they could in the hope that it would cut down on the size of this this sickness inside of him. And there was at one point a 50-50 shot that he would die on their table or come out of it better. And for a while he was better. And then yes, like you said, it did end up spreading. It did end up metastasizing. And there was really nothing more that they could do outside of making the decision to move to home hospice and mm -hmm. eventually just die. In in those eight months, I, I had to assume that it was just very aggressive chemo and radiation as well. Yes. So I, and this is part of where kind of my guilt surrounding all of this comes in. I don't remember a lot of this. And I don't know if it's because I have really just blocked it out or if I was really around as little as I think I was. My dad was a very proud person. He didn't he didn't really want others to worry about him. He kept kept his previous sicknesses between himself and and his wife and I think this is one of those things where me and my siblings and, and even my mom, who also was concerned about him, we, we were just late on the uptake, I suppose. We were, we were second in line to know a lot of the things that were going on. And so when the decision was made to use this cocktail of chemotherapy and stuff, we didn't know until a little bit later that was the decision. I don't remember what it was. I don't remember for how long he had it. I don't even remember where he went to go, but it's, it's tough. It's tough to hold guilt for that, though. If if it was kept from you, <laughs> it. I don't think it was on purpose. I really don't. It's just I wasn't physically there. You were mentioning that you spent a lot of time with your mom down south, and I had just made my way into the fire service, and I 
it, I don't know. I just, I wasn't there a lot. And whenever I would call my dad and it was every day, I was calling him like every day. It was, Hey, tell me about your day or tell me three things that you learned today from your fire. Or it was always about the job, which was helping me. And I think it was helping him because it was a distraction. But also I think my dad and I had some sort of un unwritten understanding that we would just not talk about his life as if it was ending. Yeah, that's I think not he easy. Started, yeah, I, I think he started to rely on that a little bit, especially toward the end where his death was imminent. And I, <laughs> I just, sometimes I look back on that time and I wish I had been more on top of his treatments and his timelines and things like that. Because now, talking about it now, I don't even have any idea. <laughs> so... It's a weird balancing act between I think I might have done the right thing and I wish I had done something different. Yeah, that's uh, that I completely understand. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's really all there is to it. I I I I felt a little naive after he died because the only thing the only two things in my mind were at complete odds with each other. I knew that this cancer was going to kill him. I knew that this, like this at some point would be the end. But little five-year-old me inside is also, of course, he's going to get better. That's just what he's always done. And so they were at complete odds with each other. And I think I was still shocked when he died because... That was the only available option in my five-year-old brain was that he was going to get better and he was going to recover after his surgery and after multiple interventions. And it just, yeah, it's still a shock even now. <laughs> it's that superhero that he is. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. But in my head, I was supposed to have 20 more years of getting to call him up after every fire I had during any promotional process that I decided to participate in at the end of each shift to tell him things that I learned. And yeah, I don't have that anymore. And it has severely affected my passion for this job. I don't really know where that passion is a second, but <laughs> I know work is generally the safest place for me, but it's been a long year trying to figure out how to get that passion back. And so before this, you lost your significant other. Yeah. The, so September 1st, my dad died. And then on May 3rd, so almost exactly four months prior, May 3rd, my significant other, whom I had had a complicated relationship with, he died of a drug overdose. He had a history of alcoholism for about 20 years. And we were in the process of making arrangements to basically go our separate ways. And yeah, he, he overdosed on Vicodin. So I heard, and I didn't find out about his death until two weeks after it actually happened because everybody assumed I knew because of social media, <laughs> which I had no idea. <laughs> and I missed the funeral. I missed basically any opportunity to actually grieve his loss at an appropriate time. People grieve at funerals and things like that. So 
I, I missed all of those opportunities. And I look back now and can truthfully attribute a lot of my success in the fire academy to this man, to this this selfless person who knew that there were going to be sacrifices that he would need to make for six months as I went through the process. And he did all of those things and right in the middle of COVID too. And as I was in the academy, I think COVID had a pretty profound impact on him and and so did my schedule. And he relapsed and tried to come back from rehab, a changed person, and he slipped right back into right back into old habits, unfortunately, and then ultimately died. To say that the last two years have been a whirlwind would be an understatement. Yeah, that's a lot for anybody. One of those is a lot for anybody to take or between a fire academy, a change in changing profession, you know, losing a significant, losing your father, you know, COVID, all of it. There's a lot of change right there. Yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot about our perception, uh, humans' perception of death and dying, and it's dealing with those things or even just being adjacent to those things as a friend or as a parent watching their child going through something or as a, uh, a spouse or whatever we don't really get taught how to do those things. We don't get taught how to be there for people who have experienced loss. And I remember listening in in Lauren's podcast that when she was in the hospital, people would come around for the first several months and and then they didn't and then they stopped. And that is exactly what happens to people who have experienced People stop inquiring. People stop asking how you are. And eventually it gets to a point where, in my head at least, people are looking at me and saying, okay, are you done yet? Are you over it yet? Have you moved on yet? Or have you moved forward yet? And that's, like I said, it might be all in my head. That might not be what people are actually thinking, but some are. And That's a really, it's a really easy way to get, to to isolate somebody who has experienced these things. And we don't get taught how to validate somebody or how to appropriately speak to someone who has experienced loss. And so I've made it, (laughs) made it my mission over the last um, year or so to really educate, kindly educate people on things that you just don't say or things that would be a little bit more helpful to say. And I even created a lecture that I deliver to our incoming recruits <laughs> as a result of this. So I can't say everything that has come of this experience has been negative. It's taught me a lot about myself and given me another opportunity to give back to an organization that has done a lot for me. But it still sucks. <laughs> it's still pretty awful. Yeah, it's, it is. You're right. And and like you say, something if something good can come from it, obviously not to be cliche, but that's the best you can hope for. I just I I think one of the biggest struggles that I have experienced is a lack of purpose. I'm not quite sure where my life is going. I'm not quite sure 
where my career is going. I'm not sure where my motivation is. It's all, it's all in the wind right now. And anything that kind of gives me a little bit of purpose, it, and, and usually it's education related, ironically enough, <laughs> if I can educate someone or a group of someone's on how to best be there during these times, then okay, like I, I can accept that, that that is a little bit of my purpose trying to return to me. All right. That being said, what have you found? What are you, what are you teaching? Death is, is imminent. It's going to happen to all of us. It's going to happen to the people that we love. And given our profession, we're going to witness it a lot. And we're going to be adjacent to people who are dying or dead. And then the loved ones of people who have died. And there are a lot of really cliche things that not only first responders tend to say, but just people in general tend to say, because it seems like a really good alternative to silence or to not saying anything at all. And among those cliche kind of sayings, are things like they're in a better place now, or God wanted another angel, or everything happens for a reason. I even had a healthcare provider try to tell me in sciency terms that there are 7.8 million, billion, whatever they said, people who experience loss every day. And I'm sitting here, wow, <laughs> thank you for making my loss feel special. And there are just certain things that. I have found that have triggered me. And it might be different for somebody else, even if they're in a very similar situation, having lost a parent or significant other. But there are a lot of things that we can do in those situations that are better than trying to bring religion into it or saying that everything happens for a reason. Okay, what was that reason? With a reason, <laughs> goddammit. That reason. Yeah, so there are a lot of better things that we can say. And I think, I think it rests with people becoming comfortable with something inherently uncomfortable. It rests in people's ability to to say that they're sorry for that person's loss and mean it. And, and that's okay. Like, you can stop there. It, I've tried to encourage people who are adjacent to somebody who has experienced loss to offer to do something specific for them. A lot of people in times of distress will offer, well, if there's anything that you need, let me know. I don't know. Like, I I had no idea what I needed, who I needed, in what capacity I needed them in those several weeks, months that followed those two deaths. I had no clue. And so offering something more specific, hey, let me, I had a, one friend of mine send me a Grubhub gift card so I could order food. I, I had another person um, offer to come and take care of my pets while I was, I don't know, off doing something else. And so those specific things really take the burden off of somebody who has experienced loss to make yet another decision. Another favorite of mine that I've gotten, especially recently, because now some time has passed between 
those deaths and, and now is, why don't you consider therapy? Okay, I don't want your advice. And if I wanted it, I would have asked for it. So unsolicited advice has been one of my biggest kind of pet peeves because I just want people to listen. And I think that should be okay. And so I'll kindly remind people who reach out to me, I don't like I don't need I don't need you to tell me to go write in a journal. I don't need you to tell me that I should go get professional help. I don't need you to tell me these things. I just I really just need to talk right now and I just need you to listen without trying to fix my problem. All of those things are really uncomfortable, especially being a first responder, being a firefighter, because we have these hands and we want to magically fix these problems. We want to be there for somebody who is not in a good way. They're they're not doing well. And our default, I have found, is trying to do something to lessen that awkwardness when really you just can't and that's okay and it has to be okay. And yeah, that's what I ended up building into this lecture that I created. I had an opportunity to take an instructor class through Fairfax County. And me being a former teacher, I I was already familiar with a lot of the course content, but it did give me an opportunity to really focus on the end product which was, it, it was a lecture, it was a public speaking kind of challenge for me. And I put a lot of research and a lot of my personal experiences into what has now become really an honor for me to deliver to recruits. And obviously there's a first responder spin on it because inevitably you're going to be in a position where you're in front of somebody who has just lost someone. And it's good to have some awareness in your back pocket of what to do and what not to do. Yeah, that's, that was a lot. <laughs> no, that is definitely something that's lacking in the fire service. I, it, it's not just lacking at the academy level, but apparently it's lacking if you run a medic class like we do at Prince William, it, it's lacking. It it, it's, it's lacking there. And, and those are the people that are going to be so much more likely to to deal with death and the families and the effects after that death. It is. It is. And the, the key thing that I try to hammer home is, especially as medics and first responders, we're there for a very finite amount of time. And we don't, we haven't developed necessarily the rapport that maybe a physician has or a doctor or hospital staff has with a patient's, patient's family. But we are right and we are in the perfect position to start at least facilitating that grieving process and creating space for somebody's reaction. It, it, like, it's okay. This sucks and there's nothing I can do about it except be here and witness it and answer any questions that you might have and try to give you some resources if you want them. It's It's a really messy process that quite frankly, we have the honor to be there for. If you think about death in, in various cultures, it's usually a very sacred, very divine thing. And nobody's invited except for us. And yeah, it's just, it's become a very important thing for me to get across to people who were formerly in my position, who have really no experience with the either this job or losing somebody in their life up to this point. And I think it's been therapeutic in a lot of ways to channel 
a lot of negative energy that I still have, quite frankly, into something a little bit more positive. Something that, that I guess has been on my mind in, in the job is, like you said, teaching people how to deal with the families. And there's a there's an old, not an old saying, but there's a lyric from a song that I know, and it just says, nobody dies with dignity. And it's true, especially in, in our job. It's mm-hmm. very rare that the patients we see are going to die with dignity. Yeah. And most often we're working them on a code and that's not dignity. And so what we do after that has got to make a change for the family. And so I think it's finding that way to dignify that death. Maybe, like you said, just acknowledging that there's a loss there, offering a resource. Yeah. And then I think more important, I'm not more importantly, but equally important is being able to just sit in the silence that might be necessary. Yeah, I I recently had an experience where, okay, specifically referencing our line of work, um, normally somebody who is a paramedic or an officer is sent to inform family members and to, they're like the extra hands (laughs) that aren't in the process of doing tasks and things like that. I had an experience within the last couple of weeks actually where I was the only one who was sitting with a wife whose husband had just committed suicide. I was sitting with her as she cried. And there's nothing there's nothing that there's nothing that I can do except sit there and tell her how normal her reactions are. And then surprisingly, she brought over her 10-year-old daughter who was also in the vicinity and mom went to go make a phone call and I was sitting next to this 10-year-old girl and she asked me point blank is my dad dead and I was like whoa <laughs> I I'm not sure if I am in a position with a parent present to be the one to share this news and so I, I made the, the decision to say something like, my partner is currently running some tests to figure out what happened. And then she looked at me again. She said, I don't know why I'm not crying. And all of a sudden, I was looking at myself through her eyes because her and I had the very same reaction, numbness, very dissociated. And... I hated being in that position. However, I knew that as a result of my experiences, that I was the right person to be in that position. In, in the fire service, we gravitate toward toward problems and we try to fix them. But we all know that there is that person on our shift or that person in our battalion <laughs> who is not the right person to do this one thing, <laughs> oh, regardless yeah. of their time and service. <laughs> we all know who it is. We all we can all pinpoint that person. And conversely, we can all pinpoint the person who you know is right for the task. And so you set your own pride aside and let them do this thing. And that was me for that particular call. And it was all I'm I think back on it now and I just, I saw myself in that situation and I'm never, from this point on, I'm never not going to see myself and I feel like as crappy as the past year and a half or two years have been, 
it's prepared me for a section of this job that people aren't prepared for. (laughs) And it really makes me look at certain things differently. It really expands my situational awareness to include the people standing by. It's so important. It it is very important, and to be, I, you're the second person that's just described it to me as we get this honor to be there. Yeah, and it really is. That's such a a shift in thinking that I think people need to to be aware of. We get immune to it, unfortunately. Yeah, and we I don't know how many times we all go out on a code and work work a code, and then I've, it's you have that dark humor. Okay, I hope dinner's still cold or still hot or whatever. We get immune to it and then we make comments amongst ourselves and it's, it's our way of dealing with it, our way of moving on from it so we can go out and do the next call. But you never get immune to it. And, and it's just, like I said, it's shifting that paradigm from, oh man, we're just, we're, here's another one to, oh wait, let's help this family through that. Let's, on, let's, let's recognize what an honor it is to be helping that family. Yeah, I really hope that if there's any kind of uh, shift in mentality, that it's that one. I mean, unless you have experienced loss, then first of all, you're come like your time is coming, <laughs> and, and you'll understand the things that you don't that you don't understand yet. But I really hope that people see that no matter how many and death revolves around CPR. No matter how many CPRs we go, it's still going to be a privilege for me to, this this sounds terrible, it's still going to be a privilege for me to watch that person die and to be there knowing that I did what I could. And now that they're dead, let me turn my attention to somebody else who needs it more now, who needs more comfort now, who needs more more explanation, who needs space, who needs something to help start that process and I go on these calls now and I we have an overdose and I see my significant other we have an alcoholic and I also see him we have somebody with cancer I see my dad we have somebody who is actively getting CPR or who's on home hospice I see these people now and I can't unsee them and that that makes me such a better provider in the most unfortunate way and it's like I said, we're all going to be there eventually, whether we are, you know, we're the provider or we're the patient or we are the patient's loved one. We're all going to be there. And I hate to have to attribute this to people dying in my life, but I get it now. And it sucks. And that's a point that I don't think people, especially younger firefighters or younger providers, don't understand. You know, they- it's going to get us all. Yeah, why would they? No, I, mean, I agree. I, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't at that age. But yeah, and once, like you say, once you get that taste of it and you realize, oh shit, this is for everybody. Yeah, it really is. And bringing this a little bit full circle, I, I am depressed. Like I, I struggle with massively intrusive thoughts. I am still trying to figure out how to deal with emotions and feelings that I've never felt before that I never thought I would feel for X amount more years. 
And I think that sometimes dealing with this would be easier if I wasn't a firefighter, if I didn't share this profession with the only person that I want to share things with. Um, but I can't because he's dead. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, I, I think there's a lot that is still going on with me that people wouldn't really expect. And I was very, very fortunate at the time of both of those deaths to be with a a crew that I knew was going to be there for me, that I knew was my second family and who went out of their way to not treat me any differently now that I had these major events in my life. And I started, I started to see work as a safe place, even though I admittedly wake up sometimes in the morning and work is the last place I want to go. <laughs> it ends up being the safest place for me because I have people there that I know that I can rely on. And I get home from work and I'm, I'm stuck. I'm still stuck. And I'm going to be stuck for a long time. And it's sad is a very comfortable place to be. And that's very dangerous realization because there are some days where I don't want to get better. I don't want, I don't want anyone's help. I don't, I don't want to see anybody. And grief thrives in isolation, that's for sure. But it's just going to be a long road from here on out. So you develop a program to help people prepare or equip themselves. That's, I mean, <laughs> it's like a little piece of what I've been able to do with this time. What else do you do for yourself? I, well, the biggest piece of advice that my mom gave me before I joined the fire department was to keep a journal. And I've been journaling all my life, but now it's taken on a new, like a new significance just because it's where journaling, and for me, it's not blogging. I don't type any of my entries or whatever. Journaling specifically with pen and paper helps slow my brain down and it really holds me accountable for just working through and identifying emotions like hard emotions and it's helped me figure out where my triggers are it's helped me figure out patterns in myself that don't serve me and it's brought it's helped me develop a new updated awareness of where my body is given the, the recent events, where my mind is given recent events. And it has been helpful. And to sit here and say that I've talked to a bunch of my friends about, you know, what I'm going through, that would be a lie because I don't have that many. That's one of the unfortunate side effects of this experience is that is very isolating. And I have effectively burned a lot of those relationships to the ground, unfortunately, just because at that point they weren't serving me and I didn't know how to communicate what I needed or what I wanted. And I spent a lot of time on my own. Um, I try to do something physical with my body every day because it's a, it's a good stress release. I work a lot. I find refuge in in helping people. I find refuge in working at our teaching. Ironically, in I find refuge in routine. And as chaotic as our job is, it's pretty routine. You go there, you get there at a certain time, you check out your equipment, you 
go to lineup, you run calls and you work out at roughly the same time if you can. And there, there is an element of routine to it. And so I think that specifically for me has been very important. Um, I have not chosen to see a therapist because I think that for me specifically, it has been extremely, as somebody who historically sweeps feelings underneath the rug, it's been very important for me to be able to identify them and name them on my own and collect myself before I go and talk to somebody who can maybe give me some additional strategies. But in terms of self-awareness, I it may sound prideful to say this, but I don't necessarily think that they're going to make me aware of anything else <laughs> that I haven't already made myself aware of. And that's not to say that people haven't reached out. We have a great behavioral health organization in Fairfax and they've reached out out of concern and I have respectfully declined and that's okay. And people have been okay with that. But yeah, there's nothing special about what I'm doing or what I have done. It's just, I'll get there eventually and I'm just taking it very slowly <laughs> at this point. Grief grief, and the, and the dealing with grief just comes in waves. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, I, hate, I always use cliches and I hate them, but it's a rolling with the punches thing at times. It is, and that's not cliche at all. And because that's exactly what it, it is a punch. I woke up this morning and I knew that I was going to be speaking with you and I got very emotional about it and considered rescheduling because I wasn't sure if I'd be able to talk about it. <laughs> and I woke up yesterday and was feeling pretty neutral and tomorrow might be vastly different and I might wake up and just cry. I don't know. I like, I have no idea what's coming next. The best that I can do is try to identify my triggers and give due diligence to my grieving process for both people. And that's hard, <laughs> especially because those two events happened within close proximity to one another. And eventually, I hope to share more about this because I did for a while. Uh, I did share a lot of my process at the onset because I didn't really know what else to do. I was sharing my process over social media and giving updates and things. And people have been grateful for that. And those who have chosen to not follow that, that's cool too, because it's not relevant to your life yet. I understand. Very important yet. Yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But in recent months, I've cut back on that. And this here, this podcast has been a great opportunity to open up about this very confusing thing. I almost feel like I've been talking in circles a little bit. No, not <laughs> at all. that's what it feels like every single day. That's what it feels like. Grief brain is a very real thing. Is, is that an actual term? I think it is. I don't know like what the scientific basis around it is, right. but I am... I'm way less efficient. I'll get, it's very scatterbrained. I, I, I remember I had this incident with somebody else who I, I was in my own head. I was miles away thinking about my dad. I was on my way to work and just completely stuck in my own head. And I remember somebody else that I work with said good morning to me and I didn't hear. Like I was, I did not hear any words come out of 
their mouth and they approached me later to ask what they were doing wrong, to ask if I if there was a problem between me and them. And I was like, oh, my gosh, no, this is not. <laughs> and how do you explain that to somebody who doesn't really know you? How do you go about explaining a whole history to somebody you're not quite familiar with? And that's my worry about trying to find a professional therapist to maybe help me is that, okay, there's maybe two people on the face of this planet who I have chosen to confide in and who have been there for really big, really uncomfortable things in the capacity that I have needed. And now I have to go and try to establish a relationship with somebody else <laughs> who there's a 50-50 shot that they're going to get it. And there's a 50-50 shot that they are not going to be the right person and I'm going to shut down. Yeah. So it's it, that's a hard decision to to make. A lot of, I feel like a lot of people who are grief adjacent, who are around somebody who has experienced loss, are there at the right place at the right time. Because you just, when you experience loss, you just never know. Your grief, your, excuse me, your brain is in survival mode. It's in fight or flight mode. And so you just never know when you're going to come down enough to accept the condolences or the help that somebody is trying to give you. And I, right right place, right time for those one or two people. And that, 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 that's the extent of my relationships right now. You, you had that, all that loss for in a quick amount of time. And so you have to be hesitant, I, I, I would imagine. You have to be. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have anything else right. to say about that. Like, you very quickly find out who is really there and who's going to stay. And it forces you to reevaluate your whole life, your relationships, the people in it. And you have to do, you have to do an inventory, whether you like it or not, to shed people, places, situations that are not what you need. And that's a hard process. And there's a lot of guilt involved in that as well. But at that point, I feel like it's okay to be a little bit selfish. It's okay to do what you need to do to take care of yourself. And if that involves cutting people or gaining new people, then then that just has to be okay. Oh, it definitely has to be okay. And like you said, you have to do what you need to do for you. Yeah. You have to. Yep. But from here, I don't really know what the future holds, really. I, since my dad's death, I have not been to a major working fire. And I dread it now. <laughs> I absolutely dread it. I know that's my job. And of course, I'm going to go and I'm going to do my job. But after that's all said and done, it's going to hit me and it's going to hit me hard that I can't call him and debrief. And even though he listened to the scanner, <laughs> I, like I know he did, it's going to be hard not talking about those things with the only person I want to talk about those things with. We're going to see how it goes. <laughs> Eventually, it's inevitable that time is coming. So basically for you, like everybody else, the future is in the air. It's just that's the truth for everybody, correct? Trauma does that. And 
yes, it's in the air. I had aspirations before that I no longer see for myself. I feel some days as if I'm just going through the motions. Actually, that's probably mo I feel most days now that I'm still going through the motions. Um, I'm still trying to figure out where my place is in this job that I, I really love. I just don't have, I don't have that. I feel like my foundation was ripped out from underneath my feet and not just the foundation of having my dad as a support system, but also my significant other. I'm, I, like I said, I attribute a lot of my success in the academy to him. And both of those foundations very much were ripped away and it's all up in the air. <laughs> I have no idea what tomorrow is going to look like, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is okay. It has to be okay. And, and, and because there's, I mean, what other option is there? None. Yeah. <laughs> not for me anyway. I don't, not for me. there's not really an option for anybody else either. It's, it has to be okay. And, and you just have to find the strength to go from day to day. And, and like you said, roll with the punches. Pretty much. And then I, I have to assume that eventually those punches come less often. Yeah, I've read a lot of articles about grief in the last year or so. And I think the best description that I've come across, and a lot of people have probably heard this, but that grief doesn't get, doesn't get easier. You just become accustomed to incorporating it as a daily part of your life. And there, there are some days where it is so a part of my life that it consumes my day and maybe I just want to be angry or sad that day. <laughs> and I'm honest about it. People ask, oh, hey, how are you? And most people's responses are, oh, yeah, I'm good. Or, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I don't lie anymore. Like, if I'm, if, if I'm in a bad mood, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll say, yeah, I'm angry at the world today because there's, <laughs> there's just not, it's not in me to, to, cordially have that conversation that that superficial conversation anymore and if somebody wants to follow up then that's fine and if they don't because it makes them feel uncomfortable then that's fine too but at least i told you the truth about the type of day that i'm having <laughs> and, yeah, and there's some health to that that's not a bad option it's part of identifying those emotions and trying to figure out where they're coming from and it's keeping other people informed too. Communication is a massive deal to me. And if I can better communicate with the people that I work with or the people that I care about, what's going on with me, even if they don't have anything to say or they don't know what to say, that's fine. At least I told you. And at least now your brain can work around what I've got going on in some capacity and maybe maybe you can relate to it and maybe you can't and that's fine but yeah i don't spend a lot of time anymore beating around the feelings bush because it's so important that i continue to stay on top of what i'm feeling for my sanity's sake for my you know mental health's sake for my physical health's sake super important nowadays it's a, yeah, that's valuable. That's, that's definitely what I think most people or more people should take into account is if you're honest with, with those answers, more people would know how to, I don't know, not deal with you, but especially at work and in our job. I mean, 
people need to know what's going on. They need to know where your head is when it's not in that exactly not right. I won't go with right. Maybe it isn't in the normal space for you. Exactly. It's not your baseline anymore. And we need to know. And they deserve to know. And I can understand that there are some there are people out there who aren't as fortunate as me in terms of being or working around people that they feel that they can trust or people that they feel beyond the shadow of a doubt would show up if they really needed them. And that that really sucks. I, I cannot relate to that. But somebody out there should know that you're not at your baseline because this is where grief manifests and this is where it grows. And this is where, this is why, this is why people get stuck. It thrives in isolation. And if nobody knows, then I, I don't even want to think of the potential consequences for somebody who feels that they are in a situation where they cannot communicate honestly with at least one other person. I don't even want to think about those consequences. No, I don't. I, I wouldn't want to consider those either. Yeah, that's, I think it's valuable advice. Just, you know, talk. Yeah. As best as you can. That was, uh, that's a hell of a conversation. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I keep laughing about it. It's not funny at all. No, but... <laughs> that's a defense mechanism. I laugh in, in those moments as well. I get, for me, I guess it would be a defense mechanism. So I understand it that way. That was a fascinating conversation. I appreciate that. Me too. More than you. Let's, let's, let's do this. Do you have any idea what you would use as an everyday carry or a book right now? Let me just clarify what you mean. Yeah. You mean ahead. something that I could recommend? Yeah. So what I do is the question is based on, I, and you've listened to a couple episodes. I loosely based the title of my podcast on a book by Tim O'Brien. And okay. it was written in the mid early eighties, I believe. And it was, it's called the things we, the things they carried. And it's a, okay. it's a short story based novel uh, about a platoon in Vietnam. And what he talks about are the things that these guys took into battle M16 or, or the aid bag for the medic or the radio for the radio operator, these mm -hmm. things they carried into battle. It was a lot to carry into battle, but we all know it's so much more to carry out of battle, those emotional right. and mental scars. And th the things we all carry is based off of that. We, we all carry our gear into a fire, into a medical call, into whatever. And then we bring those memories and those scars out with us. And so yeah. that's where I talk about the things we all carry. But what I like to ask people is, is something physical you might carry on your person from day to day that without it, you feel naked? Oh, yeah. For me, it's my, it's the necklace that I wear. Does that kind of answer what, what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I completely understand now. For me, it's the necklace that I wear. That's the thing that never changed about my appearance. It has great emotional significance. I have two charms on it, essentially. And the first charm is the uh, Maltese cross with St. Florian on it. And it was given by my dad to my mom when she graduated from her fire academy in Prince George's County. And it was gifted to me before I graduated from my fire academy. And I have been wearing it basically every day <laughs> since I got it. And then the second charm is one that I had made for myself. And it is in honor of my significant other. It has the uh, addiction recovery triangle on it and his initials and his date of death. 
So I, without it, I would, (laughs) I cannot even describe to you the level of devastation (laughs) that would come over me if I did not have it or it was lost. And so I feel like I'm always touching it just to make sure that it's there, but it's just a constant wearable, tangible reminder of just pain and and grief and the fact that we think we have time here but we don't and to try <laughs> to make the best of each day even if that best falls short ultimately yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. making the best of a day is just making it through the day. Or just waking up, you know? Right. <laughs> that 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 for me has been my definition of success on more than several occasions. It's just a good reminder and it has a lot of a lot of significance. I, I learned last year actually, and and this is another thing that I want to put on this necklace as a third and final charm. I learned that my employee identification number is also the same date that my dad proposed to my mom. Oh, how ironic is that? Whoa. Let me just tell you how just my mind was so blown. And so I want to get that in some capacity and kind of put that on here because I'd really love to tie tie my mom into this necklace and complete the inspiration triangle, if you will. So Just a massive dose of serendipity. I know it is, but that's the thing that I will carry from here on out. And I'll protect it and and uh, just means a lot. And I know from reading through your timeline on Instagram that uh, you're quite a reader. I am. <laughs> so is there a book now or in the past that you've consumed and read and, and you, you just want everybody to know about it? Hey, go check this out. I do. And it's actually a recommendation that I make in um, the lecture that I give to our recruits. It's I've listened to it in audiobook form, which is I I love audiobooks, but it's called I Hear You and it's by Michael Sorensen. Okay. Audiobook is also narrated by him and it's two hours and 45 minutes. So it is literally a two day listen, perhaps. And I Hear You is an actionable, informative book about one of the most important qualities of communication, and that's validation. And the book really has nothing to do with grief or death or dying or anything like that, but it is an exception how-to book that teaches you, first of all, why validation is critical to our relationships, day-to-day relationships. And it teaches you how you can make small changes in your everyday life to really be there for people who come to you with problems that you cannot fix. And that as a broad topic, I've had the opportunity to put these skills into practice an innumerable amount of times. And I would recommend on a human level, 
recommend this book for anybody, literally anybody, not just anybody who's experiencing X, Y, or Z, but anybody, because validation, I am absolutely 100% convinced, is a skill that we suck at. And it is a skill that will save us a lot of trouble, a lot of grief, a lot of awkwardness. It will, it fosters love and respect and appreciation and it helps eliminate fear and uncertainty and I cannot sing this book's praises enough please read this or listen to this book because it's going to change your life I mean with that recommendation how can I not read it so that's awesome Please listen to it. I don't think you'll regret it. And the narrator and the author who are the same person, he's very unpretentious. He doesn't, it's not like a, it's not a book that you're going to get halfway through and be like, did I learn anything yet? No, that's not how this is. So it has drastically improved my ability to be comfortable with being uncomfortable on the other side, because I, there are people in my life who have lost significant others and parents. And I'm to the point now where people are asking me for advice about their parents going like transitioning into hospice. Mm -hmm. I'm at that point. And so it really gives me ears that listen. And like, I cannot understate I, I can't overstate its value. I'm going to, yeah, well, when we build a page and all that'll be linked in there. So I, that, that suggestion is perfect, obviously cool. for this topic, obviously. Yeah, it's great. So, look, that conversation was great. I appreciated everything. I, I halfway through this, I started thinking, well, maybe this is the episode right here. So I'm going to have to listen to this again and, and see if that's the case, because I just like the, the way we, the way it went. If you, if, if you can appreciate that. Yeah. So let me take some time and, and I'm going to listen to this again. And then if I f- think that we should record, I, we'll record. If not, there was emotion and there's passion. There was everything in this and, and it it was natural for you. And I, I kind of, I don't want to say enjoyed it because it's a topic that nobody enjoys, but it was fascinating. What I'll do is I'll listen to this and I'll share my thoughts with you about it. And if you'd like to, I'll send it to you to listen to as well. And if you're comfortable with it, then we can release it and, or we can record an actual time to sit down together and, and record. That, that would be up to you as well. Okay. All right. Yeah, that sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for the- No, I, yeah, you, this was a perfect discussion and I appreciate it. Something good comes of it and uh, hopefully other people will be able to re- relate to it in some capacity. So I thank you for that opportunity and uh, that's it for me. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. And, and I guess I'll say it's a pleasure meeting you and sometime maybe we'll meet in the future. <laughs> That sounds great. <laughs> awesome. All right. If Thanks you need anything, if you need anything, just reach out and enjoy the rest of your day. All right. You do the same. All right. Take care. Bye.